All right. Well, tonight we are going to be in Psalm 82. Psalm 82. You can uh, find it on page 492 in the Pew Bible. And uh, Psalm 82 is a short psalm running only eight verses. And so I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are God, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So injustice is a very popular word uh, in our culture. Uh, people decry all kinds of injustices uh, in the, in the, you know, especially in the kind of law enforcement, judicial system, and, uh, and in injustices in the environment, injustice in the society. There's so much talk of injustice that it threatens to actually kind of drown out uh, and, and kind of water down the actual definition of, uh, of injustice. It's kind of like... Um, have you noticed that everything is trauma now? Everything is trauma. And, and, uh, and it's like, well, and, and people say, oh, well, that's, that's an actual problem because people who've experienced actual trauma, you know, don't need to hear about your trauma because Burger King messed up your order. All right. That is not trauma. You know, your extra onions are not, you know, are not trauma for you. Um, and so, uh, and so it, it threatens, uh, it threatens these important definitions that we need to maintain words. We are learning, uh, truly do matter. And the definitions that we have for those words do matter. And so we do struggle to define injustice today. Uh, and, and, it, and if we do, and we, str- if we struggle to do so, it can cloud our ability to be just ourselves and in our own conduct. So many people, uh, you know, they, they, they seem to define injustice simply as something I don't like, uh, an experience that, that I find unpleasant or something that makes life hard for me or for others. And part of the problem is that we often uh, put man at the center of our definitions. Uh, but if we are to define injustice, we actually have to uh, understand that it's a negation of another word. So if you're going to talk about defining injustice, you have to be able to have some kind of definition of what justice is, positively speaking. And in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, there are two words that are commonly translated in the English as justice. They are the words for judgment and righteousness. Uh, That is, um, justice is the application of righteousness through judgment in a specific case. So justice is the application of righteousness through a judgment in a specific case. That is what doing justice is. And, and, and so injustice would be a perversion of that. It would be to, it would be to, do, uh, it would be to do unrighteousness. It would be to withhold uh, righteousness. 
uh, and, and a righteous judgment uh, in a specific case. Uh, it would be to uh, to give the case over uh, and, and, and show partiality to a particular party over another party because we like them or because they give us things. Right. And so injustice is a perversion of justice. And our text tonight is all about injustice and as well as the longing uh, for justice. But before we get into really the the meat of the text here, we have to uh, basically solve or deal with what we can only call a divine conundrum that is presented to us in verse 1. And now I've got the, uh, the outline for tonight's sermon on the back of the bulletin there, if, uh, if you want to follow along. Um, but uh, it, it's, this verse 1 strikes up a, a question. It says, he sits in, a, in, in he takes his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods. He sits in judgment. And then later on in verse 6, he I said, you are gods, sons of the most high. So, so what's going on here? Is, do we have one God among many gods? That doesn't sound right. Uh, the text begins um, with this picture of God sitting in, the, in this divine council uh, and in the midst of the gods. So uh, well, we may recall other scenes in the Old Testament, like uh, in the book of Job, where, uh, where angelic or even demonic, in Satan's case, beings would come present themselves before the Lord. Uh, and, and he would say, what have you been doing? And I've been going, I've been going hither and fro and, you know, doing all the, doing all the devilish things that I do. Um, uh, or uh, in, in 1 Kings twenty two nineteen, where the prophet had a vision uh, of the Lord and the host of heaven before him discussing which one of them was going to come deal with the situation at hand and become be a, a lying spirit in, in the mouth of the prophets to bring down the wicked king. Uh, and, and so we might point to these somewhat confusing pictures that we see. And, and at this point, uh, um, liberal scholars love to chime in here and, and, and talk about how, you know, this, this picture is, is not uh, unusual to find in, in pagan literature that depicts the courts of the gods. Uh, for, who, for instance, there's an ancient uh, uh, text where um, Marduk, our favorite, uh, our favorite pagan god, right, uh, uh, Baal and Marduk, um, uh, who was uh, elected the, the chief of the gods. And, um, and so this is, you know, something like that. It, it is a remnant, a relic of, of the polytheistic roots of the Jewish people and how their uh, theology, their religion uh, evolved over time from polytheistic to monotheistic. All right? And I remember hearing that stuff uh, when I was a freshman in college um, uh, from, uh, from the Intro to Philosophy professor. All right, um, letting us know that uh, that oh, religion is all polytheistic, and then it evolves into monotheistic religion. I even read that that theory this week from a liberal scholar. Um, now, against this is so what many scholars, and most most recently, uh, I, I read uh, my favorite uh, Dutch scholar Herman Bovink, uh, who uh, hi- who highlights this point: no religion has ever moved from many gods to one god. There is not one recorded religion who has ever moved from many gods to one god. There are religions who have gone from one god to many gods, but not, not from many gods to one. It's always been in one direction, to, from the mono to the poly, not the poly to the mono. It never happens. And, uh, and further, uh, Jewish monotheistic belief is hardcore monotheistic belief. 
Uh, they, the Jews were willing to die for it. There were groups that were like, well, we only have one God. And they were like, well, you have to believe in our God too or we're going to kill you. And they say, you know, suddenly we've reconsidered our theology and we believe that we can believe in more than one God. Now, uh, where the Jews were like, no, we will die. I mean, that was one of the reasons the Romans gave special exception to the Jews because they realized the Jews were not going to let it go. The Jews would actually take it to the last man. And so we're supposed to believe that if, you know, that the Jews just somehow missed this verse in, 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 in their hymnal. Is that what we're supposed to believe? No. Um, and finally, um, if indeed the scriptures are a product of men and there's who are just and these these basically these groups of men who are just editing these documents over time. And this is what developed. Um, how did in the world did they miss this verse? How did the monotheistic editors miss verse 1 of Psalm 82? All right. We're not talking about some kind of like publisher that's publishing hundreds of books and just one kind of slips through cracks. Right. These are the scriptures that they're holding to that define the faith. And if they're really these groups of editors who are editing these things out. Well, then how in the world do we even have this in our text? The very presence of it communicates the fact it actually works against that idea of this kind of idea that's very popular amongst liberal scholars that um, there's these, these groups of editors. I don't know why they think there's like all these editors that just keep editing all the Bible, but they are very attached to that theory. And, and the other thing is, I'm just like, I just say, I'm just like, these aren't stupid people. <laughs> these, these are, I was like, these are guys who memorize all of this. Right, that they would memorize all of it, and you're like, I'm supposed to think that person I'm smarter than them, right? Because I've got a smartphone, because because I drive a car, I'm smarter, right? Okay, it's just like how many of us, you know, it's like I remember back in the day when I used to memorize all my, all the phone numbers, like I knew all the phone numbers of all my friends and stuff like that. had it all memorized. I got nothing now because I've offloaded that part of my brain into my cell phone. You know, and now it's kind of like it's you know, it's kind of like I, I don't even know how to get anywhere without some kind of directional gadget telling me to go. It's like go upstairs, turn left, go to the bathroom, you know, so it's getting bad. All right. Let's just that's what we're saying. Um, it's just it's it's the height of arrogance to just go, to sit down and look down upon the scriptures and go, oh, these little kindergartners with their crayons. Isn't it? Isn't it silly? They left a relic of their polytheism in, in, in the scriptures. Isn't that funny? Isn't that quaint? So um, obviously don't agree with this theory. <laughs> um, and so if, it's, if that's not it, uh, then that must mean that term gods, uh, a, a lowercase g, refers to something else. And if we survey the scriptures, we are presented with two basic options. Both are viable um, within the faith as you are looking at, at the scriptures and what the scriptures present. Because it uses them in both these ways. There's the term gods that can apply to spiritual beings such as angels or demons, but not in terms of like gods, like uh, in a pagan sense. Or it's also uh, applied, uh, we see in the scriptures, to the leaders and the rulers of the world generally, and also of Israel specifically, and sometimes applied to the people of Israel as a whole, as generally. So we see all those uses. So it can be applied to spiritual beings. It can also be applied to people. Those are those those are those two basic options that we have. Now, for my money, um, God's refers to here to the unjust rulers of God's people. That is what I truly believe that the psalmist is referring to here. 
Um, there, uh, and there are scholars, even wonderful evangelical scholars, who argue for kind of angelic spirituality, you know, principalities and powers kind of thing at work there. I don't quite see it there, um, but I'll explain why. First, the nature of the complaint in the psalm seems to be addressed not to angels who are messing up their jobs or, or demons, but to men who hold authority and who are unjust. Secondly, they are threatened with death. They are threatened to die like men. And so, uh, and, and so you know, that, that speaks to me that they're human. Uh, third, we have examples in Scripture where men are referred to specifically as a god. Like in 1 Samuel 28, 13, when, when Saul went to the witch at Endor. Um, which, thanks to Star Wars, I can't help but think of Star Wars when I say it's at Endor. Uh, but... Um, uh, but he goes to see the witch at Endor, and, uh, and, and he says, what do you see? And she says, and she was seeing Samuel, and she says, I see a God coming out of the earth. All right, so she describes him as a God. Uh, finally, most importantly, Jesus, the supreme interpreter of Scripture, we can say, in John 10, 28, cites verse 6 in his defense against the people who are about to throw rocks at him to kill him. And, and in doing so, he says that the Lord through Scripture called them gods. Who? Those to whom the word of the Lord came. That's who he identifies the psalmist is calling gods. And, to, and, well, and who is that? Well, all of Israel to be sure, but especially those whose responsibility it was to give justice to the people of God, which are the leaders the elders, the judges in Israel. And so kind of, all right, so we kind of cleared that hurdle, all right? And, and, you may, and you may or may not know it. This is one of the biggest kind of controversy kind of things. They spill a lot of ink about verse 1 in Psalm 82 in, in, in the literature. But, it's, uh, um, but, uh, but now that we've kind of cleared that hurdle, uh, now we can actually get into the meat of the psalm in verses 2 through 8 and basically understanding what we're going to call first the injustice of gods and then, and then the justice of God and how the justice of God settles everything. So first in verses 2 through 7 we see the injustice of gods at work. And so their commission we find in verses 3 and 4 which is what they're supposed to be doing. Right? What are they supposed to be doing? And... And, and it says in verse 3 and 4, Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. And so first of all, we're reminded right at the outset that the authority to judge is derivative of God's authority to judge. There is nothing inherent in just because a guy puts on a black robe and sits on a seat that's taller than me there's nothing in him inherently that makes him a judge over me, right? He is imbued with that authority. He is given that authority um, uh, to him. And, and so judges are given authority that they do not have inherently. There's no inherent qualities that says you're a judge, you're not a judge, right? Um, and so, uh, and, 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 but they have that authority not for themselves, but so they can do something for others, in service to society, in service to the people around them. And so they are serving a cause, and we would argue a being, higher than themselves. 
And, and so here authorities are charged with four verbs that describe their work. Uh, and so that word give justice is literally just the Hebrew word to judge. So, so to judge rightly is what it's communicating. So give, so give to, so, so to judge, to maintain, to be just, uh, which is what maintain means actually in, in the literal Hebrew and to rescue and to deliver. That's what, the, that's what the four verbs that is given in that commission. And the object of those verbs that they are to give, to, to give justice, to maintain, to be just to, to rescue, to deliver, are the weak, the fatherless, the afflicted, the destitute, the weak, and the needy. They are the ones who benefit. And they are to be against the wicked. And so judges are meant to look out for those who are in no position to benefit from their, that authority. Right? They, they can't, they, like the judge cannot benefit from giving justice to a poor person. They're not going to bribe them. They're not going to give anything to them. They can't do anything for them. And it doesn't mean that they're supposed to show partiality because of their socioeconomic status. Um, uh, but uh, you know, even, our, even our own court system today reveals an age-old truth. People with money have more options and ability to do stuff for themselves right, than poor people do. So the judge and the ruler who often had both hats in the ancient world to oftentimes the king would be the judge or the person who's the provincial ruler would also be declaring the judge. He'd be the judge. And so um, and so they would have to wear both hats. Uh, They are given a grave responsibility to ensure that the helpless and the weak are not being run over by the powerful. And And so and so that's their commission. That's their responsibility. But verses 2 and verses 5 through 7 lay out their failure. They have not fulfilled their charge. The leaders of, the leaders of God's people have, uh, have judged unjustly. They have, instead of resisting, they have assisted the wicked. And likely for their own benefit. Likely they enrich their own pockets along the way. And, it, and indeed, great is the darkness in the land when the powerful oppress the weak, especially unchecked. It is striking that even in our own country, the founders, they set up a, they set up a, um, a, a system that favors the political minority. Uh, so that way the majority can't crush that political minority. And, and people have been fighting against that ever since. <laughs> right? Ever since. Why do we got to listen to this group over here? You're like, we designed a system exactly for that reason. <laughs> so that you can't just mow down or run over uh, you know, the 10% or the 20%. You have to listen to them. doesn't mean you got to do what they want, but it means you at least got to listen to them and you can't just squish them. But there's, this thing, there's a thing in humanity that says, no, 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 no. If I'm in the majority, I just want to squish them, <laughs> right? Now, it's hard to tell in, if verse 5 is talking about the leaders or the people. They have neither knowledge nor understanding they walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. So commentators are a bit divided on it. And I actually kind of think it's probably talking about both. The more I thought about it. Because if the leaders of the land are this way, then certainly are there people that they lead. Right? When I was, when I was in, installed at the church, Bob Schwanebeck, he said something at my installation commission that I never forgot, which was, as the leaders of the church go, so go the people. Be careful who you make 
your leaders because the people will follow. And so the leadership of the church matters and the leaders of of the people of God matter. And so if the judges and rulers have no knowledge and understanding and walk about in darkness, well, so does everyone else. So. I mean, and, and, I was in, and this made me wonder, it's like, is, is this not at least part of that darkness that John talks about in chapter 1 of his gospel? He talks about, it's not just him quoting Isaiah, but the darkness that people live in is one of sin and rebellion against God, of, of death and oppression, that is primary spiritual in nature. But, but how is sin expressed in the halls of power if not through injustice? Corruption, partiality, persecution are all species of injustice. And so God threatens them with the consequences for their wickedness. Indeed, they are gods. The word of God has come to them and they have power in the world. They have authority in the world. They can make people's lives better. They can make them much worse. And here the leaders of Israel are addressed. Jesus quoted this text in addressing the Jewish leaders of his own day. And who, we ask, is, is it that the word of God has come to today? Who is the one? Who are the ones that have the word of God today? We've been applying you know, what we've been saying fairly generally and largely along those who have authority in our country, uh, in, in, the, in the legal system perhaps. Uh, but I would argue that this especially applies to the elders of the Lord's church. We are charged with the spiritual care of God's people, caretakers of the souls of God's own prized possession. But it also applies to every Christian who possesses any amount of authority over others in our workplaces, in our homes as parents, with our children. And God makes it clear in verse 7 that no amount of privilege will enable one to escape his judging eye. If a man be wicked, though he has power and authority upon the earth, he will fall like any other man. Like the thousands, even millions of princes who have fallen before him. And this leads us to actually the the comforting truth that that is brought to us in the very last verse of the psalm. In verse 8, that the justice of God settles all matters. And this is because God, is, God has an absolute right to judge the earth. God is the supreme judge of the earth. By ver- you talk about no one inherently has that kind of judge quality that they must be a judge. God does. God does. His authority to judge is not derivative from anything. It is self-derived. He is is his own authority to judge. He is the one who will make judgments according to righteousness. Righteousness that is defined by his own character. It is right for God's people to long for the righteousness of God to increase in the earth. Even through his judgment. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount declared that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness shall be satisfied. Indeed, they will be satisfied, for where human justice falls short, God brings comfort. And, and, we, and we know what that longing is, don't we? 
We have personal situations where we have experienced or observed great and and, uh, serious and gross injustice. Situations where, where that cause us to weep and to cry out to the Lord for, for His judgment to come. This is not because we are so sure of ourselves. But the injustice we see and, and, the, and we experience rightly unsettles us. It bothers us. It disturbs our mind. As the, and as the psalmist writes in verse 5, all the foundations of the earth are shaken. Injustice is a destabilizing force. And so, you know, I just, I was thinking about, I remember years ago, there's that horrific story, the, um, the Gosnell abortionist, and I think it was Pennsylvania, um, where he, got, he was arrested. Uh, he, had, he had killed women. There were baby body parts discovered and discovered. He was just, it it was, I mean, the details were horrific. And I remember just as I read through the story and got familiar with the details of it, I just started weeping and just pounding my desk in anger. You know, and I, I don't even live in Pennsylvania, right? So like, but, but that's just, but there, there are gross and awful injustices that we see in the world. Now, thankfully he went to prison. But again, we still go, well, that still doesn't have a sense of that it's enough, <laughs> right? The sense of injustice is right. It is right to feel in an unjust world, a world that has sin and brokenness in it. And it's right to long for the justice of God. And it's not, oh, well, I'm a sinner too, and so I can't do that. No, you should. Like when I tell people, if someone says, well, we shouldn't long for God's justice. I was like, no one's really hurt you, have they? I was like, you talk to people who've experienced injustice, people who have been physically assaulted, had family members killed, have, have gone through deep loss and, 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 experience, and, and there's no ramifications in this life. And what can they do? They lift it up to the God of justice and vengeance and say, Lord, it is yours. It's not mine to take because I'm not the judge, but you are. And that's one of the the, the special works, the special beauties of the Psalms is that they have a place for a longing for justice and the experience of deep and hard loss. But in this world of injustice, there is hope. So one, one scholar wrote, When earthly rulers fail, being themselves directionless, leaving people comfortless, presiding over social disintegration, there is still a true God to whom they are answerable and to whom we can pray. And even more, we know that in the kingdom of God, his righteousness will shine like the noonday. And so, we, and, and so we long for God to come and to set the world to rights. Even as we know, we, we long for God to come and to set us right. To remove the remaining corruption from us. And indeed, even Peter says in, in 1 Peter 5 that God's judgment begins with the church. It's good not to forget that. But it's interesting here, this word arise from the psalmist. 
Why does he say, Lord, arise? He's got to sleep. Does he think he's asleep? No, of course not. But it feels like he is. Because there's so much wrong before his eyes. Yet we are encouraged, even by David's words in Psalm 139, that in the deepest part of the ocean, God's hand rests upon his people. And that the darkest night is like noonday to him. It's not, the darkness isn't dark at all. It might as well be 12 o'clock. We may see nothing, but God sees all and he will judge. And this brings us to God's inheritance, which the psalmist defines as the nation's. All the earth belongs to our God. But isn't it interesting that the inheritance of God is not described in terms of land allotments, but in terms of nations of people. And this is interesting because on the one hand, it highlights the mission of Israel under the old covenant, which was to be a light to which all the nations would draw, that they would come to. But as we move through the ministry of Christ into the New Testament... That light is no longer drawing people centrally to a central nation, but the light is now dispersed among the nations through Christians, through God's people, who are children of Abraham by faith. And this actually gives us the why of God's justice. Certainly we would say God is just because he's holy and he can't be anything other than just. Absolutely. But most importantly, our God dispenses justice because of his love for his inheritance, for his people. Most powerfully, our God poured out his justice upon our wickedness, on his son, on the cross. He issued his judgment against our sin and Christ who became a curse for us, who in turn became our righteousness. It is to him the inheritance of the kingdom of God belongs, an inheritance that the son, the king, shares with us. And so all of this leads us to the understanding that that a dissatisfaction with the state of the world, with the injustice that we see in the world and at times in the church is a healthy thing. We are reminded of our own responsibility in our spheres of authority that we have in the lives of others uh, to execute justice according to God's righteousness. We are reminded of our high privilege as the people of God, as the ones who have received the word of the Lord today. But at the end of everything, we are reminded that God is our true hope. He is our true home, not men, not their authority, not the judgments they can deliver that last for a moment. God is our hope. Even the most just system in this world will have serious problems. The guilty will go free. The innocent will will be punished. But always we have hope because we have our God. We have his son in the gospel. And because we do, we know that as we hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God, we shall be satisfied. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you 
that though we may see injustice in the world, though we may see the injustice that is at work in our own hearts, Father, we know that your spirit is at work, that your, that your sovereign grace is at work in the world, that ultimately you will set the world to rights. And Lord, we pray that you would instill in us and stir in us that hunger and desire for righteousness that can only be satisfied in the kingdom of God, that can only be satisfied by your provision, by the work of your hand. And Lord, may we not, may we not supply or take, take, uh, take, put our hope in counterfeits of your justice or just temporary moments. May we celebrate those, those moments of justice and righteousness when they come. May we give glory to you and may, and may, our, may our own country, our own society, our own city uh, grow and move towards a mo- more just and righteous way. Lord, may you begin with us. May you begin with our church. May you begin in our homes, in our hearts, and how we interact with others. How we execute our authority that we have. And Lord, may your light shine. And Father, we do pray that you would arise. That you would judge the earth. For the nations. For your church is your inheritance. And we praise you for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.